Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm guest hosting today for Dr. Pat. And in solidarity with Dr. Pat and our new first lady, Dr. Jill Biden, let me introduce myself. I'm Dr. Mary Angela McGuire, and I really appreciate you joining me today. My regular gig here at Transformation Talk Radio is as the host of Nothing But Now, which airs Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And on the show, I talk about mindfulness and the challenges and rewards of incorporating mindfulness into our daily lives. The show is an extension of my work as a life coach, where I work with people to help them reduce fear, fearful and negative thinking, the kind of thinking that causes us to have suffering, deep suffering in our lives. Since my work as a coach and in my podcast is to encourage mindfulness, it might seem odd that my topic today is the case against mindfulness. That's right. Recently, I was reading Sigrid Nunez's latest novel, Where, what, you are, what Are You Going Through? What Are You Going Through? It's an interesting phrase, and it's, uh, there's no question mark at the end, and I think I stumble every time as a result. So Sigrid Nunez, it's a beautiful novel, What Are You Going Through? And I came across this passage where the narrator has gone to see a lecture at a local college, and the speaker, we learn later, is her ex-husband. This is what she tells us that he says to his audience. And how sad, he said, to see so many among the most creative and best educated classes, those from whom we might have hoped for inventive solutions, instead embracing personal therapies and pseudo-religious practices that promoted detachment, a focus on the moment, acceptance of one's surroundings as they were, equanimity in the face of worldly cares. Self-care, relieving one's own everyday anxieties, avoiding stress, these had become some of our society's highest goals, he said, higher apparently than the salvation of society itself. The mindfulness rage was just another distraction, he said. Of course we should be stressed, he said. We should be utterly consumed with dread. Mindful meditation might help a person face drowning with equanimity, but it would do absolutely nothing to right the Titanic, he said. It wasn't individual efforts to achieve inner peace. It wasn't a compassionate attitude towards others that might have led to timely preventative action, but rather a collective, fanatical, over-the-top obsession with impending doom. End quote. Long before I was a college professor or a life coach, I was a college debater. And it was perhaps the most powerful experience in my education because it taught me how to put critical thinking into practice on my, my feet every Saturday afternoon at some college campus in California. Uh, so when I read the above passage in Nunez's novel, I realized that in the several years that I've been practicing mindfulness, I haven't spent much time reading critiques of it. I've exercised critical thinking skills by evaluating what I read about mindfulness, 
sometimes maybe rejecting is too strong a word, but not being particularly interested in some perspectives and strongly embracing others. But this passage reminded me of the importance of examining and taking seriously perspectives that are deeply critical of beliefs I hold dear. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to talk about what I've been reading in the last several weeks, the critiques of mindfulness that I've seen, both from within the mindfulness movement and by those uh, beyond it. And I've identified five things that I think people say frequently uh, about mindfulness. And I'm going to endeavor to respond to them, not perhaps as I might have as a college debater, um, but mindfully. And to describe the experience of and the challenge of allowing these ideas to become part of my own perspective on mindfulness. So here are the five things that I think you're most likely to see in a critique of mindfulness. And they're interrelated, but I've made them slightly separate. So the first one, and you'll see this in a lot of different places, uh, both in kind of short articles and more and deeper evaluations, is simply that mindfulness is a commodity. It's something that's being packaged and bought and sold in books and podcasts, retreats and phone apps, and that the modern version of it that we see in all of these places and marketed in all of these places is really designed to do nothing more than make the seller a few extra bucks, and in some cases make the seller pretty rich indeed. So that's the first one. It's just a commodity and nothing more. It really doesn't do much for anyone except the person selling it. The second that you'll see often is that it's Buddhism light. And you know that Buddhism light, L-I-T-E kind of light, right? That it's detached from the serious teachings of Buddhism uh, to make it simple to market, right? Interrelated to a mass audience, but that it is so divorced from those principles that it really couldn't, shouldn't in any authentic way suggest that it's derived from them. The third is that its benefits are simply overstated uh, particularly any kind of scientific work that uh, is being used to promote it or to say, see, it has actual consequences for something like our understanding of neuroscience, um, and that the claims that it makes uh, about helpfulness are in no way unique to it, that you can achieve the same ends through other means, means maybe that you don't have to buy uh, or go to a retreat or go to a webinar or put an app on your phone. Um, a fourth one is that it is a tool of neoliberalism. In other words, that, and, and this comes in part from the fact that it's often used in a corporate setting. And uh, it suggests that it makes, this critique suggests that mindfulness makes people passive and complacent and willing to accept whatever the culture at large, but their bosses in particular, ask of them without criticism, without any sense of their own agency perhaps, uh, and without exercising their critical thinking skills. And then the fifth is that it not only teaches passivity and complacence, but it gives people an excuse for not being politically active. And in that particular sense, and there's a critique that's really emerging that's very interesting to read about, is that mindfulness can in fact be an expression of white privilege. If you look at mindfulness communities, are they dominated by whiteness? And uh, are the people there being encouraged to have this passive complacent attitude that would be accepting um, not only of white privilege, but of uh, sy systemic racism uh, towards others? So 
those are the five most common critiques I think that we see in the literature. And again, uh, among people who are uh, promoting mindfulness themselves, so critiquing others that you're, they're not doing it correctly, but also from without, from uh, writers like Barbara Ehrenreich, who is a very uh, credible, interesting writer and someone who has some really harsh things to say about mindfulness, to be honest. Um, so we're going to start by going back through these and talking about them in a, a little bit more detail. But since uh, we're, we're kind of at the 11 minute mark, so let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, look at each of these five common criticisms of mindfulness and say, where are they on the right track? Right. How can we be open to some of these criticisms and at the same time uh, bring our own understanding of mindfulness to bear to say and, and our own critical thinking skills to ask ourselves, what is true here for me and, and what is not? So you're listening to the Dr. Pat show on Transformation Talk Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ambrosia. And I'm Alexa. And we, and we are the hosts, hosts of Inner Bloom Podcast. Podcast a podcast about spirituality and intuitive development. Together, we utilize our intuitive gifts and our own personal life experiences to empower you to live an extraordinary life. Check us out and subscribe at innerbloompodcast.com. Imagine starting your week off with a teaching, a clearing, and an activation direct from the God consciousness. If you would like to feel more in charge of your week ahead, then I personally invite you to join me, Tracy L. Clark, for our monthly Soul Sunday non-denominational service at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, online or in person. All donations for this event go to the TLC Initiative Fund to help those in need. Sign up now at tracylclark.com and let's connect together in the glory realm. Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? Really? Check us out. Go to transformationradio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time. Do you drive yourself crazy trying to make important decisions? And when you finally do, then you start second-guessing yourself. Would you like to know why you do this and how to change it? You can. When you take time to go inward, you'll find a wisdom that resides in the body. Begin by quieting your mind and sending your awareness into your body. Notice where there may be a discomfort. Ask it what it wants you to know. Listen carefully. It will reveal what it is about making this decision which holds you back. You can keep asking for information until you reach the deep core value of what keeps you from comfortably making a decision and sticking with it. Awareness is the first step toward making change. I'm Carrie Kadambi, and I'd love for you to join me on Transformation Talk Radio for my show, A Spirited Exchange. For more information about me, visit my website, thedivineguidancegift.com. Are you ready to get big and live your life out loud? Tune in to Get Big Out Loud Radio, exploring life through the lens of curiosity and compassion with me, Carrie Knudsen, joining Dr. Pat live every second Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. I will offer ideas to transform what you are thinking into conscious action 
If you want to get big and live your life out loud, visit me at KnutsonSpeaks.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Dr. Pat Show. I'm Mary Angela McGuire, and I'm guest hosting for Dr. Pat today. And uh, you can catch me usually on Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on my podcast, Nothing But Now. Love to have you join me there. And uh, today, even though my podcast and my life coaching work is really is often about encouraging people to learn about mindfulness practices and incorporate them into their daily lives, today I've decided to take on the case against mindfulness to really engage in an exercise, I would say both of critical thinking and of mindfulness in order to bring my conscious awareness to what are the limitations of this belief system that has become very important to me and to so many other people. So we're looking at five of the most common critiques that you can find um, in a, any kind of in, in books and magazines, newspaper articles, through Google searches in the library, etc. If you're looking for the case against mindfulness this is an easy thing to put into a search bar. And the first one is this idea that it's become a commodity, that it's simply being bought and sold, and that it's only real value is to the person who's doing the selling. And I think it's an easy uh, uh, critique to make because there are so many different ways in which one can engage in mindfulness practices, and there are so many different things one can buy uh, as part of that uh, endeavor. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say practice, but as part of uh, engaging with that, that, that way of thinking about the world. So there are all sorts of apps one might put on one's phone to remind you to meditate during the day or to breathe. Um, there are, any bookstore has an enormous number of books. I went into a bookstore recently that was more uh, about spirituality and uh, you know, I, honestly every book in the place probably had something uh, to say directly or indirectly about mindfulness. Um, and there are, there are retreats, there are webinars, it's it has proliferated tremendously since uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who was considered the person who really brought stress-based mindfulness meditation to the U.S. Uh, in the 70s. Uh, and since that early work that he did, it has gone in so many different directions. And you see it not only in really things that talk specifically about, say, mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, mindfulness meditation, uh, and other things that maybe don't directly talk about it, but incorporate some of those principles. So yes, any, any one of us could spend an enormous amount of money uh, buying the mindfulness knowledge or information, not the experience, right? Not the practice, but a lot of information about it. And uh, of course, I think the obvious kind of response or rejoiner to that is that's certainly sadly not unique um, to um, any belief system is its capacity to be uh, bought and sold. So I would say the fact that it can be bought and sold doesn't in itself invalidate the practice, nor do I think that's what the argument is that those who are criticizing it make. But it's related to kind of the second idea, which is that it's Buddhism light, right? It's it's detached from the serious teachings of Buddhism to make it simple for a mass audience. And I think given the incredible proliferation of materials about mindfulness, it's not surprising that there are many different versions of it, that many different ways of explaining it and exploring it. And not all of them have the same grounding in Buddhism. 
And this was a place when I was reading where I really noticed, um, and I am not a, a particularly a student of Buddhism, so at all, um, I've read some, right? So I would not claim that as a practitioner in the slightest, but like any belief system, it does have many different strands. And when you read the critiques that focus on this idea of Buddhism light, what you'll see is that there is quite a bit of argumentation within the mindfulness community itself uh, of people criticizing one another for their practices and the authenticity of their practices. So that was that was very interesting to me. It's not simply a critique that comes from without. In fact, it kind of makes sense. It comes from within as much as anything else. Um, the third one is that the benefits are overstated and are not unique. And this was really uh, the claim that Barbara Ehrenreich was making in her book, um, whose name I've just, uh, Natural Causes, uh, that came out two years ago. For her, the, the book itself, Natural Causes, is really a critique of the wellness empire and of what she says is our effort to try to avoid death. Um, and in, in the big sense, and um, and also that it is de, that it the wellness industry is designed to sell us um, the illusion of control and control over our lives, control over our bodies, control over our minds, and therefore control over the end of our lives. Um, and I I think she makes an interesting point that um, that control is an illusion. I have to say, I don't think the average mindfulness meditation person, teacher in particular, would disagree with that. Um, that uh, it's simply right. And I don't, I've never read anything that suggests to me that mindfulness is about control. Um, and I personally think control is an illusion. And the first time I ever read that sentence, it was absolutely transformational uh, to really understand that we we don't believe that. We tend to walk through our daily lives with the illusion that we are in control uh, in the sense of if I, you know, I change the light switch, you know, I think I have control over what's going to happen there with the electricity, but that there are so many ways in which even that is an, is an illusion. Um, it may or may not happen. That light might burn out. The whole system might go out, right? Things happen. Um, and our that illusion of control puts us in a place of always uh, being horrified, <laughs> when things don't go our way, when things go amiss or awry, uh, as opposed to saying that that is normal, that that is to be expected because we don't have the control that we often think that we do. But this um, argument about the benefits not being both overstated and not unique is one that you'll see um, when people talk about it and as the, in the relationship between mindfulness and neuroscience and what neuroscientists are finding and noticing about the brains of people who meditate when they meditate and sometimes after uh, what kind of calm, uh, alert, awake awareness that they might be able to have or sustain as a result of the meditation practice. Um, and Aaron Reich writes, you know, you can gain some of these, first she claims it's over, an overstated claim, and then she says you can gain, gain some of these benefits of calmness, serenity, equanimity through other means. Um, and, and I would say that's probably true. That's, I would, it's been true in my life and I imagine it's true in yours as well. The fourth claim is that it's a tool of neoliberalism, right? That it's really just designed to make us better workers uh, in a capitalist society in order to make more money for our, our capitalist uh, bosses. And it's an interesting argument, and it makes sense that it has arisen because um, many of the ways in which um, 
mindfulness has proliferated in this country in particular is that in the corporate setting. So, and then Erin Reich writes quite a bit about this as well. She really blames the tech industry. Uh, they brought uh, some aspects of mindfulness into the workplace, uh, but that, and through having meditation rooms in the corporate environment, uh, organizing retreats or webinars, making coaches available, um, making it, incorporating it, integrating it into the wellness program in general uh, for their employees. And uh, there are a lot of really kind of creepy pictures of people sitting in suits on the ground, supposedly meditating. And I think it actually does feel kind of uncomfortable to say, you know, what what's really happening in that photograph? Um, are people just being encouraged to become passive and complacent uh, in and 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 in that context of work uh, to be sort of better workers? Uh, so it aroused a lot of suspicion because you can see from a cursory glance at contemporary corporate America that really, let's be honest, right, big business does nothing that does not contribute to their bottom line, right, or and executive pay and shareholder earnings. So it's inconceivable to some people that a program sponsored by an employer has personal liberation as its goal. It's a, an understandable critique, if you ask me. And then the fifth one that I think is emerging more clearly uh, and, and is in more uh, more recent things that I've read or more recently published work that I've read is that it's not only teaching passivity and complacence, but that it gives people an excuse for not being politically active, that it's very self-absorbed, self-centered. It's only about the self. And, um, and that as long as I have peace, inner peace, right? And I'm projecting inner peace out into the world that I don't have to be politically active, that that in itself is enough. And that um, in that sense, and very specifically then in, in our the conversation we've been having, at least white people have been having um, in the last 12 months, I think African-American people have been having this their whole lives about racial inequality and injustice in our country and the need for racial reconciliation, but that to um, go into a mindfulness space and to make that your central belief system can in itself be an expression of white privilege. And that's a very, to me, damning critique. It's really something worth taking in. So that's what I want to transition to next. So if these are the five most important critiques, uh, what, what can we say about them? And if we are trying in our daily lives to practice mindfulness, what, does, what do these critiques call upon us to do? I would say for me, uh, before I read all of this, I wasn't particularly interested in the critique beyond my own response to the things that I read. I didn't like everything I read. I didn't pursue everything that was available. Um, I was, I think, kind of picky. Um, so, but this has really called me to say, well, let's, let's talk about the bigger picture of this. So I'm gonna, in my responses, really put these, some of these things in, in groups. And the first one is, I think it asks us, encourages us, the thinking about these critiques of mindfulness, to think about our critical thinking uh, capacity, right? What are the legitimate questions that we ought to be asking ourselves when we look at any belief system, right? Um, what level of scientific support, for instance, do I need in order to find something useful? Is scientific backing the thing that persuades me that something is legitimate or worthwhile? What results am I looking for? What guarantees am I looking for? Am I looking for a quick fix? Do I think that this will be that? Um, can I bring a critique, I would hope, to the notion of a quick fix, right? That something as long as suffer, have, 
long standing as my habits of mind, the, the idea that I could bring a quick fix to it, that's something I ought to be suspicious of no matter what the product is or the book is that I think I might buy that would help me. I think the higher the cost the, uh, in terms of my own time or money or the government's, right, the more I ought to appreciate perhaps evidence-based assessments. And then the question of uh, mindfulness is often accused of being perceived or uh, claiming to be a panacea for suffering. Um, do I believe anything is a panacea? Not, not unique to mindfulness, but in my own thought processes, what are my expectations? What do I need to be persuaded that something's useful? What are the questions that I should always bring to any, any system of beliefs that I might want to incorporate into my daily life? So that's the first thing we want to talk about. We're going to take a break right now, our second break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about two other particular ways that we might mindfully respond to the critiques of mindfulness. You're listening to The Dr. Pat Show on Transformation Talk Radio. I'm Dr. Mary Angela McGuire, and I'll see you after the break. Message delivery by Lisa Ann. You can't make this stuff up. Tune in every first and third Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Message Delivery is an inspirational show about the journey to enlightenment and spirituality. For more information or your own personal message delivery, visit AngelMessages2U.com. That's Angel Messages, the number two, the letter U.com. Transition, simultaneously the most difficult and vital part of the human experience. Without change, how would we grow? Tune in to Grounding Into Your Radiance with Stacy Barber every second and fourth Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Step into your truth and allow the light into your life. For more information about Stacy and her services, visit StacyBarber.com. That's Stacy, S-T-A-C-I-E, Barber.com. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit BurnBrightToday.com. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Steffen each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. Raising the vibrations through stimulating conversations while exploring the mysteries of Atlantis and Lemuria on Tales from the Mer World Radio with me, Amirabeth. Join us every second and fourth Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Be ready to feel empowered and an active part of the changing earth. For more information about me, visit Amirabeth.com. The Truth is Funny, Shift Happens with Colette Marie Steffen is excited to welcome Karen Benton as a monthly guest host. Tune in on the third Wednesday of each month at 8 a.m. Pacific time to regain confidence and trust in your capacity to create change in your life, your health, your family, and your well-being. Karen Benton is a mother, nurse practitioner, 
certified body talk practitioner, Franklin Method instructor, and owner of Limitless Living LLC. For more information about Karen, visit karenbenton.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Dr. Pat Show on Transformation Talk Radio. I'm Mary Angela McGuire. I'm the host of Nothing But Now, which airs Thursdays at noon, 3 p.m. Uh, Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern Time here on Transformation Talk Radio. And I hope you'll join me sometime. So the topic of my show on uh, is nothing but now is mindfulness and incorporating mindfulness practices into our daily lives. And today here on the Dr. Pat's show, I've decided to address the topic, which is the case against mindfulness. There are, uh, although mindfulness is extremely popular in our culture right now, there are books and webinars and retreats and phone apps uh, abounding everywhere you look, it seems you can find a way to think about or bring mindfulness into your life to practice it. Um, But there are significant critiques of it. And um, that's what we're talking about today. So we've been talking initially about the idea that it's a commodity, something to be bought and sold, that it's Buddhism light, that it doesn't, it's really most, much of it is divorced from the kind of the authentic roots of um, Buddhist thinking. Um, but, uh, and, and so we've been talking a little bit about that. And, and one of the ways, if, if you like me are committed to mindfulness, but you want to take these critiques seriously, then what I've been suggesting is that we have a, a reason to do that when to, because it in itself, I think taking the critique seriously is a practice of mindfulness is of noticing what is happening when I hear information that's contrary to or critical of something that is important to me. Um, so the question so we've been talking about what kind of critical thinking questions we might be asking ourselves, uh, what do I need to be persuaded? What, uh, what's important here? Um, what what matters? And the next set of questions I think about is really to examine what is my role in in mindfulness? Is it just something I'm doing for myself as an individual? And in a sense, you know, it's my money to, and time to spend. And if somebody who's making a buck off of my time and money, I guess that's my choice. Um, but there are kind of two limitations I want to talk about with that. But the other question is, or am I a person who is encouraging others to participate in it? Um, and I am, right? I'm a life coach. People pay me to talk to them, uh, to listen to them more than anything else. Uh, and in in responding to them, I often encourage them to explore um, mindfulness practices. Um, I recommend books to them. I recogni- recommend uh, podcasts and websites of people whose work I think is inspiring and legitimate. So I think it's worth paying attention to the critiques so that I can be asking myself, what am I thinking carefully and thoughtfully about the quality of the work that I am encouraging others to participate in? And am I thinking carefully and thoughtfully, even if it's only for my own edification, about that edification? And we'll come back to that in the moment, in a moment, the idea of, is it enough for it to be helpful to me? Do I have to be helpful to other people? Um, in order to benefit from mindfulness. And then another question I think uh, around the self is is really about who benefits from my beliefs and who benefits from me participating in mindfulness beyond just uh, perhaps the people whose books I buy or the webinars I attend. So who's asking me to do this? Is it my life coach and is she selling me her book? I don't have a book, so that would not be the case in my in, for me. Um, but uh, who's asking me to do this? Is it my employer? What, what are my employer's real intentions? What does my employer gain, perhaps, from me 
practicing mindfulness? And am I and and how is it that they're asking me to practice it? So are they asking me and encouraging me and giving me meditation room and time on my schedule, maybe to go meditate for 20 minutes a day and then come back and continue to be, oh, I don't know, an arms dealer, right? Or a person whose job it is to deny other people health care, right? Or to work in a detention center uh, holding immigrants to this country in terrible conditions, right? I mean, there's mindfulness and there's work and there's work. And I, I think that is the challenge and not everyone has the freedom to choose or feels that they have the freedom to choose their job. And, and really, literally, some people don't get to choose very much or their choices are all bad. Let's maybe put it that way, the few that they might have. But for many of us, and I suspect people who listen to this kind of talk radio with a college education, with some freedom of choice, are we using mindfulness to pacify our anxieties and concerns about the work that we do? And so when I think about to whose end am I engaging in mindfulness, that becomes really important. Is it to quiet my mind so that I don't mind what I'm doing or a living? That's a problem. Um, and I don't think any practitioner of mindfulness who's legitimate really thinks that that's a great thing. Um, because no matter how... Uh, let's say, Americanized, the language around mindfulness is, I think the most authentic language around mindfulness is around, is around liberation, mine and others. Um, and so I don't think the people that I've read would ever encourage someone to do work that they think is soul crushing, um, but feel okay about it because, you know, they t meditate for 20 minutes a day. And then the last critique that I want to mention that I think is really important, and I was so glad to see it, is a critique that says not only is mindfulness encouraging passivity and complacence and acceptance, but it's, it's um, not promoting in any respect, and in fact, doing the opposite of promoting political action. Um, and in the particular critiques I was reading is that, that it can be an, then an expression of white privilege. Um, now, of course, they're not saying mindfulness causes the problems of white privilege, but neither do they solve it. And I, I will say I disagree with that. Um, and I think it depends, again, just as I was saying, on how one practices. But um, from my perspective, you know, and I think about this as a white woman with class privilege, I need to know what my habits of mind are, especially if I think of myself as a non-racist egalitarian. Right, because there are so many really important critiques of what are called white saviors, right? People who are ready to change the structure of our society, but unwilling to treat the actual people in their lives who are of different races as equals, right? That is, that is a genuine problem. And it is, from my perspective, caused by a lack of mindful thinking, of not recognizing the habits of mind that shape my actual behavior with actual other human beings, not just at the theoretical level of how ought we change society. To me, it's through deep attention to my habits of mind and staying in the discomfort that those, that, that, those observations produce. Because when I really pay attention to how I interact in the world, to how I interact with other people, I may find embedded mental habits of white supremacy and classism. And it's in those moments that I can see beyond my individual habits, right? If I stay with the question, I can see those habits, but I can see beyond them. And I can notice that they come from somewhere, right? I can see how they're both reinforced and rewarded by the social structure in which I exist. 
And I can come to understand that simply being kind and treating all people with compassion does not in itself dismantle the social structures that gave me unearned privileges and oppressed others. And so I can act from that knowledge far more effectively, but I can only really do that effectively, I think, if I know the habits of mind in terms of their origin and social structures, but I also can see how they may be playing out in my one-on-one -on -one interactions with real, live other people. For me, mindfulness has been a gateway to a deeper understanding of white privilege um, and has not been an opportunity to simply ignore it. Reading these critiques about mindfulness, of course, as I mentioned, I would say earlier, it's in itself an opportunity for me to practice mindfulness. So what are some things that I noticed as I was doing this? Um, I noticed that I felt anxious as I approached each text. And as I explored that feeling, I realized that I was, as I always have been since I was a little kid, afraid of feeling stupid. You know, afraid that I had missed some obvious fatal flaw with mindfulness and wow, I really don't like that feeling. And I think noticing that feeling is also a way of noticing when in my life do I avoid information that might challenge my worldview because I don't like feeling stupid. And for me, this isn't, this isn't how everyone would feel about their worldview being challenged, but I can see because I can observe my habits of mind by practicing uh, mindfulness, uh, that that's a place where my mind goes, that, that that feeling of tension that comes to the foreground is really about, oh God, am I going to feel like an idiot when I read this? I noticed also that there was there were at times a surges of defensiveness, and that seems really obvious to me, but I really did notice it, um, and an urge to respond and return with return fire, right? This was my inner debater coming to the foreground uh, and within an aggressive kind of reactive mode. You know, I want to tell people all the places where they're cherry picking the mindfulness literature, where they're exaggerating what they what they say mindfulness claims for itself, the ways in which they're ignoring mindfulness practitioners who agree with their observations and see the same limitations. And I was excited in places because uh, I felt like I was back in grad school with the constant back and forth of claims and counterclaims. I noticed that the lively debate among those who practice Buddhism and mindfulness meditation about their roots, the appropriate use of texts, of authenticity, and I could imagine, based on my past experience in higher education, the delight in being a participant in those discussions, even though some of them were actually a kind of, they're pretty rough on each other in certain places. And then I noticed my relief and not having to engage at that level. I'm grateful for what I've read, who I've listened to, what I've learned to incorporate into my own life. And I'm glad that I don't have to be part of those discussions except as a reader. That, that works for me. So when we come back, I'm going to talk about some where to take this idea of there are legitimate critiques of mindfulness um, and what that means for us if we are mindfulness practitioners or if we're even just kind of thinking about pursuing that path. You're listening to the Dr. Pat Show on uh, Transformation Talk Radio, and we'll be right back after the break. Tune into Three Things I've Learned with Susan Dolce every first and third Tuesday of the month at noon Pacific, three o'clock Eastern on Transformation Talk Radio. Join Susan and her guests as they share the stories that shift our souls about radical transformations, courageous breakthroughs, and life lessons. Three things I've learned with Susan Dolce. For more information, go to transformationtalkradio.com or visit Susan's website at susandolce.com. 
Are you ready to shift your current beliefs about death from debilitating pain and loss? Follow Angie Corbett Kuiper as she shares that through choice, present moment awareness, and keeping an open mind. Anything is possible, even in death. Tune in to Beyond Proof Radio with Angie, redefining death and loss every first Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. For more, visit BeyondProof.com. Imagine you are a ball of steel, smooth, small, and cool to the touch. Your life will soften you with fire. You will take hits that shape you. You will be forged into a powerful, purposeful work of art. Tune in to Forging a Life with Coach Christine Clark, joining Dr. Pat Basili in a three-part series, Truths in the Creation of Katana, on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Christine Clark, a gifted, engaging speaker and trainer who has forged her life in the fires of self-employment, will take you on a journey to exploring the internal, mental, and emotional blocks that stand between us and a life of significance through an analogy of the process of crafting a traditional Japanese sword or katana. For more information about Christine, visit sunglowtransformation.com. Conscious Confidence Radio, a timeless wisdom with Sarah Main. Tune in each month on Transformation Talk Radio and join Sarah on an adventurous journey to the deeper level of meaning to move beyond today's world of constant change, confusion, and uncertainty beyond the shadow of fear. This hit show explores key concepts such as confidence, values, and attitude in a dynamic way. To learn more about Sarah and her work, visit sarahmain.com. Join the new earth on the Cornelia Stephanie show. Tune in each month as Cornelia takes listeners on an odyssey of higher consciousness to inspire, educate, and empower. Cornelia Stephanie is a spiritual teacher, passionate speaker, published author, and founder of the Empower Network. Cornelia guides people on the path of self-healing, peace, and liberation. For more information, go to CorneliaStephanie.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Dr. Pat Show. I'm Mary Angela McGuire, and I'm having the privilege of guest hosting for Dr. Pat today. Um, You can usually catch me on Thursdays at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern on my show, Nothing But Now, where we talk about mindfulness, and I promote mindfulness practices in daily life. But today we're talking about critiques of mindfulness. And we've been talking about the most common ones, that it's a commodity that's divorced from its Buddhist roots, that it's uh, promoted by businesses to make pass make their workers more passive, that it discourages political activity, uh, and that it's uh, really just uh, not that its claims are overstated. So I've been talking about some of the ways that I think about those kinds of critiques, where I can take them seriously and imagine how it is that my mindfulness practice actually addresses those critiques. Uh, what critical thinking skills I ought to be bringing uh, to bear on anything that I put into my mind, anything I believe or read. And when I think about all of the ideas and ideologies and belief systems that I've encountered in my life, it occurs to me that it's always possible to make a series of similar arguments against any one of them, right? Whether it's a political perspective, a philosophical or religious belief system, or any of a thousand other sets of guiding principles one might see as a way of organizing one's life, it's very likely that someone could, and probably has, said of that particular way you are incorporating those principles into your life, that your way 
doesn't respect the tradition from which those principles emerge, that it doesn't adhere to that tradition appropriately. appropriately. They might say that the science you're using to back up your convictions is unsettled, incomplete, poorly done. They might say that the version of those principles you follow is an example of cultural appropriation, that it's watered down and it's tuned, turned into nothing more than a commodity. They might tell you that the freedom you think those principles help you achieve is really just another way for capitalism, the government, Western culture to buy and crush your soul. And they'd be right because there is no perfect belief system because belief systems are created by human beings and human beings are imperfect. And even the most sincerely developed set of guiding principles is vulnerable to those who would distort it, try to get rich from it, or use it in ways that manipulate and oppress others. So it's up to each one of us as we encounter a set of principles that might seem to have the potential to improve our lives to ask ourselves a lot of questions, not just about the system of beliefs. We don't just have to come at it as a critic every time, but to, but to turn those questions inward to say, why am I seeking such a system? What do I hope to accomplish by bringing a set of ideas and practices into my daily life? How will it change my life? What will the impact be on how I spend my precious time and energy? And with whom will it put me into conversation or relationship? Those are important questions. And the other thing that's really important that I think we sometimes lose track of because belief systems do tend to be turned into commodities in our culture is that we do a lot of buying, a lot of reading, a lot of listening, and not always a lot of practicing. Um, I've been in a book group for a long time and it's uh, most of what we're looking at are books around spirituality. And what I, I've noticed a couple of things about that. One is how interesting it is what kinds of texts appeal to certain people, speak to certain people, and others don't. So uh, one of my friends in the, book, in the book club and I really respond to something like um, Robert Wright's Why Buddhism is True. He's really putting Buddhism in conversation with neuroscience. We were totally fascinated. I loved Michael Singer's book, Untethered Soul, because it's thick. Right, It's not a lot of references like Wright's book, it's just his philosophy, kind of unfiltered. Not unedited, but unfiltered, and it's dense. And others really were put off by Wright's tone, or they found Singer too thick to get through, right? But they loved books that were some one person's individual story, right? They wanted the testimony. They That really spoke to them. They wanted to see how someone else uh, struggled and uh, and was able to come to a new place uh, by and find ways in order to um, get out of that struggle uh, to succeed in life and whatever success meant for them. Um, other people really responded to books that were the story of someone's service to another another community or to other people. Um, Gregory Boyle's book, The Priest in Los Angeles, who works. Um, in the in inner city and is really transforming lives and is actually I would say is in witness to in partnership with lives being transformed with people transforming their own lives uh, those books really spoke to us but the challenge we sometimes faced regardless of what kind of book was really powerful for us as individuals is that the tendency to just keep looking for books right to find another book 
to find another webinar, to find another retreat, to find another app, to find something else that's finally going to answer that question for me of how do I transform my life? How do I find happiness? How do I make myself perfect, right? An impossible task, right? But we're so so when we think about these belief systems that we might be holding, um, regardless of what they are, mindfulness or anything else, um, are we always in the place of seeking or are we ever in the place of practicing? And that has been something that I have found really challenging. You know, as a, a former academic, I could read about these things all day long and I would find that not transformational, but satisfying, right? It would satisfy the intellectual in me. It would make me feel smart. It would make me feel well-read, which is such a high value, but it's not the same as the practice itself. Um, and that, that can be, that of course is the challenge. And it's what I've really loved about mindfulness. And it's what I say on my show every week. The principles are not complicated. It's not like studying physics, friends, but putting them into practice that is the challenge because it's every moment of every day, the opportunity to practice mindfulness, right? Uh, awareness of the present moment without judgment, a very, very simple principle that is extremely difficult to do. So um, that's what I would think when I think about the critiques that we might have, I would really like you to think about it in those terms of what, what am I practicing or am I seeking? And when I do practice, do I allow myself to imagine how things might be, uh, what questions, what real and legitimate questions I might ask about these practices? So I hope that you will join me this Thursday on my show, Nothing But Now, um, at noon Pacific and 3 p.m. Eastern. My guest will be Dr. Daniel Pinot, or Daniel Pinot, he's almost a doctor. Um, he's a doctoral candidate in clinical psychology at the University of Mississippi. And Dan's research uh, involves working to disseminate evidence-based mental health information, including mindfulness, psychoeducation, and diverse outreach seminars to a large college audience. Um, and his current research looks at how best to provide online tools around mindfulness informa information about the functions of emotions, etc., effectively to college students. It's, uh, he's a really wonderful guy and uh, very interesting to listen to. And it's another way, another perspective on mindfulness. And one of the questions I'm really going to ask him to talk to us about is, if you are concerned about someone in your life, what are effective ways to provide mental health education and information to them? What, what works? Because we know that kind of shoving something like that down somebody's throat doesn't. So what, what might work instead? If you'd like to learn more about my work, you as a life coach and a communication coach, you can visit my website, mcguirelifecoach.com, or you can email me at maryangelamcguire.com. So until next week, please be curious about your mind, or next Thursday that is, be kind to yourself, and thanks for listening to me on the Dr. Pat Show here on Transformation Talk Radio.